let me ask you a question real quickly. If I were to ask you the theme of First Peter, though some of you have been here for most of the study, some of you know this just from having studied First Peter, and some of you won't have a clue, and that's okay. Uh, if I ask you the theme of First Peter, what's First Peter about? What would you tell me First Peter's about? Grace of God. Cliff, why do you say that? That's an important concept, yeah. Grace is. Anybody else? Doing good, even in the midst of difficulty, persecution. Here's the thing. When you read, as I'm preparing these sermons week after week, and I realize in preparing sermons week after week for Wednesday night, I probably retain in preparation more than you hear in hearing one time because I'm reading a passage over and over again. But in some ways, First Peter almost sounds like a broken record. Now, if I said that to the youth group, they wouldn't have a clue what I was talking about. They don't know what a record is, right? I remember my grandparents, we went into their house. You remember when stereos used to be pieces of furniture, right? And they weren't, they weren't a little thing you stuck, you know. I have a stereo in my pocket, right? It's also my phone and my day planner and all that. But you remember, my grandmother used to have this huge wooden cabinet. And it had one of those lids on it that, you, you had to push up, but as kids, it was like, a, you know, an Iron Man strength competition to see if we could get that thing up and get, keep it up long enough, you know, get it to where it would stay. And uh, I remember the day, they, they got one, this was really cool, that had not only did it have a record player, it also had an 8-track in it. AM, FM radio, it was it was high dollar. They were working. They were walking, as they say, in high cotton when they bought this. And it went in the living room, which is the only room in the house nobody ever lived in. Right? You just you would go in there and play. But you get a record, and if you got a scratch or a broken record, what would happen? Well, it either skip all over, or it would just repeat. Right? Uh, by the way, I remember the day that my grandparents got an eight-track converter for a cassette tape. So we could put our Michael Jackson cassette tape into their old-time radio. That was cool. All right, and just thanks for letting me rock down nostalgia lane for a minute. So it would just over and over and over again. And there's this theme in First Peter that just seems to come over and over, which is you're going to be persecuted, enjoy it, live through it. You're going to be persecuted, enjoy it, live through it. And at the end of chapter 4, after he's talked to slaves, after he's talked to... Um, husbands and wives, after he's talked to people living under the role of the government, after all of that, he comes to the end of chapter 4 and it's like, let me summarize for you the main points about what's going to happen. And in First Peter chapter 4, um, starting in verse 12 and following, this is what he says. Dear friends, when the fiery ordeal, literally he says, when the burning arises among you to test you. Don't be surprised. As if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, rejoice. So that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of His glory. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory and God rest on you. None of you, however, should suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but should glorify God with that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. It's an interesting 
discussion we may not even get into. But where does judgment begin? God's household, right? Where do we oftentimes think judgment begins? With the heathen, right? The pagans. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel? The idea, if we're going to suffer, imagine what those people apart from the Lord are going to do. And if the righteous is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So those who suffer according to God's will should, in doing good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. He says, listen, we, we all at some time or another have faced some difficulty because we're a believer in Jesus Christ. And if, we're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, all of you in some time in your life, either through ridicule or through um, workplace kind of ostracization, you know, being set apart at work, being outcast where you are socially, in school enduring some ridicule because you wouldn't do something because of your faith. We've all had some of that. But Peter says all of that is minor stuff, but for some of you, and particularly this group of people, you may face, and he calls it the burning, a fiery trial. One that burns away all pretense and comfort. Now for us, when we hear fiery trial, you know, even in today's language we hear that they've been through the fire, or he made it through the fire, or that team has been through the fire. But for these people, going through the fire meant going through the fire. Remember, who was the ruler at this time? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Nero. Remember what was one of Nero's favorite hobbies? Burning Christians, right? Literally. And so for these people, he's saying there may come a time when literally you experience the burning. Now, obviously, or hopefully, no one in this room, in this country, will eventually face being burned because you're a believer. That may happen. We're not necessarily inoculated completely from that but for us we have to ask the question okay so how do we handle even mild persecution and especially if it gets worse here's what i think is interesting as believers in america we do everything in our power to make sure our rights are upheld we do everything as believers, to make sure that our voice is heard and we are not ostracized, we are not outcast because of our faith in the public square. But Scripture seems to teach that being ostracized or outcast is not necessarily a bad thing. Here's what he says. First of all, he says we need to expect it to come. That's what he says right off the beginning, right? When this burning arises among you, what does he say? Don't be surprised. It's not something that's alien to the Christian life. Throughout history, the people of God have had to face difficulty at the hands of an unbelieving world. Christians are different from unbelievers, and our differences often rub unbelievers in the wrong way. Now, to be honest, as Christians, we haven't done a good job of interacting with unbelievers, and we often rub them the wrong way as well, for not the good reasons. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But there's this interaction of our culture and our ideas are different 
than the world in general. And when they come in contact with one another, whoever's in control can often dictate the terms of what happens to those who are not. And as a result, Christians are sometimes in our country ridiculed or demeaned or not heard. It just is this fact that our system of beliefs ought to be different than the world's system of beliefs. Anybody here watch Duck Dynasty? Anybody seen it? Anybody? Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about when I say Duck Dynasty. Raise your hand if you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. All right. It's a show, I think it's on A&E. Is it on A&E? Those Duck Dynasty people, let me know. All right. Tonight. It's on, it's on tonight, right? What time? You make sure I get out of here. Uh, Duck Dynasty is this reality show, whatever that means, about a family in Louisiana who the dad invented the greatest duck call. Uh, duck commander. Duck calls. And it made them as a family, the son came in, helped start running the business, it made them into multi-millionaires. Now, if you've ever, you may have seen it and not realized you saw it. They've got huge beards, scruffy, scraggly beards. And they are, I mean, if you see like the CEO's house, it is a mansion, all right? And he is still a Louisiana redneck. I mean, one night, the whole family went out to the country club golf course frog gigging. Because they were playing golf and said, I ain't never seen frogs that big in the lake before. They got caught and run off the course by security. I mean, they're just, you know, these guys. Well, I, I read, an, this has a point. I'm coming to a point, all right? This is not just a public service announcement for Duck Dynasty. Um, I read an interview today with some of the guys, and they were talking about that um, all the guys are very strong believers. And very active in their church. Some of them are elders in their church. One of the uh, one of the brothers that's not seen on the show actually has preached pretty regularly. Um, the dad is one of the that that invented the duck call is one of the leaders of the church in which they function. And they said that oftentimes in the filming of the show they will share things about their faith and about their church and about what they are doing for the Lord. And the producers just cut it. And they're not mad about that. They say, we, hey, we realize that they're trying to make a show. And we realize they're not putting any... We say everything else that happens on the show. And if you ever watch the show, they, they're crazy stuff that comes out. We say everything else that's on the show. There's nothing bad. They just say it. And so we're not saying that they're misrepresenting us. But they said, we realize, and this is what I thought was interesting, is that their culture and their understanding just doesn't mix with what we believe. And so they try to figure out how to make a show without interjecting that. Okay, That's a small, mild example. The guys at Doug Dynasty are finally, they say, listen, that gives us opportunity when we go to places that invite us because they don't know that and we can share who we are. Um, we're fine with that. Um, it's just an example of how they intersect and don't mix. Now what's often interesting and one thing that we have to be cautious of is some of the things in scripture some of the people in scripture that 
persecute followers of God the most are the religious people. What was the first murder? Who was the first? When did the first murder take place? Cain and Abel, right? What was it over? It was over worship, right? Cain liked the old hymns and Abel liked the new modern courses. Is that what it was over? No, it wasn't what it was over. It was the first worship war, though. They got mad at each other over worship. And particularly, Cain was upset because his sacrifice was not accepted and Abel's was. Abel was following the Lord. Cain was following a religious system. Cain got mad and murdered Abel. Persecution in the first family that existed. Well, the religious system that Adam and Eve passed down to them yeah, we don't, Teresa, honestly, we don't know for sure what was there, but we do know that they were sacrificing to the Lord and that Abel's was pleasing and honoring to God and Cain's was not. And so he was attempting to, because it says what he got mad about was that God wouldn't accept his sacrifice like he would accept Abel's. So it wasn't a formalized temple system, but there was worship that was happening and Cain didn't like what Abel was doing. Um, you think about in Jesus' time, who were the people that gave him the most problems? Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, Sanhedrin, right? Now, not all of them. Nicodemus was a part of that ruling kind of body. But they were following what they thought was right and got a little carried away with it. This isn't the main point of First Peter, but it is a point for us as Americans who live in a place where Christianity at least for us, is kind of a system, a lifestyle, something we've done, that we don't get so caught up in the system and the lifestyle that we forget the following the Lord part and that we don't dismiss anybody that follows the Lord differently than we do um, outside. Of, I mean, they're accepting Jesus Christ as Savior, acknowledging Him as Lord is mandatory to following the Lord. But outside of that, there's some freedom there we have to be careful with. So he just says, it's going to come. Part of that's because God in creation and then through Adam and Eve and after Adam and Eve especially, after the fall, declares war on Satan, right? He's going to destroy, remember the whole, you're going to bite the heel, but the heel will crush your head, right? But we have to realize that in the midst of this battle, who does the Bible say the prince of the air and the ruler of the earth? It says that Satan has some power. Someone has said Satan is like a dog on a leash with the Lord. He has some power, not all. And that there is this constant battle. And God has promised to defeat Satan in the end. But one of the ways Satan attacks right now is he attacks the followers of God. Jesus explained to his disciples that they shouldn't be surprised when difficulty comes. Peter's repeating, don't be surprised, probably because in the teaching of Jesus, Jesus says, when you get persecuted, talk bad about, don't be surprised because they're going to treat you just like they treated me. He's talking about here specifically fire. Fire in the Bible is a typical statement to describe um, intense, whatever it is. Whatever it is, it raises the intensity, and so... When uh, the Holy Spirit descends in Acts chapter 2, what is it demonstrated as? As fire. When God is leading the Israelites, He leads them by fire. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put to the ultimate test, it's in the fire furnace, right? And so He says, not all difficult experiences will be terrible, but 
there will be some where it is ratcheted up. The word happened is important here. That The idea is that it will go. Arises among you. Don't see surprise as if something unusual happened to you. Persecuted trials do not just happen of being accidents. They are part of God allowing things into our lives. And so he says, don't be surprised when you're there. And then he uses a word that is really, to be honest, shocking in the context. Instead, verse 13, as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah. Now, I don't think he means that we can share in Jesus' cross sufferings. What I think he means is, as you share in suffering because of the Messiah... Instead, rejoice. Now you think about all the words he could have said about how to go through trials. Endure it. Persevere. With gritted teeth, take it. Just let it pass. Think one day it will blow over. What does he say? Rejoice. What do you think of when you hear the word rejoice? And what comes to mind? Being happy, right? Excited? Singing, celebrating, having a good time, overjoyed. Yeah, the word there is actually the verb form of great joy. It's the verb of have joy in the midst of that. In fact, he uses joy or a word like joy four times in that one sentence. That's about two verses, but it's one extended sentence in the Greek. He says... Be constantly rejoicing. Rejoice with exceeding joy. Be happy. The idea is that in the midst of suffering, we ought to be laughing with joy at what's going on. Now, I'm not talking about sometimes you hear something, I've just decided to laugh because it saves me from crying. Anybody ever heard that? Just so much has happened. I'm just, I can't cry anymore, so I'm just going to laugh. All right? It says to rejoice in the fact that you are suffering. Joy. In fact, the word, first one there, that one where it says, share in the sufferings of the Messiah, rejoice, is a present imperative in the Greek, which means it says to continually express joy. Over and over again, continually express joy. In the midst of the fiery trial not the little trials this is the big daddy this is the one when you get to be your elderly years you look back and say that was the big one i mean i've been through a lot of trials in my life i've been through a lot of difficulties but now that was the season or that was the year or that was the moment rejoice continually in the midst of it. Now, he didn't tell us just to rejoice and not tell us why. Here's why, he says. First of all, he says, because our suffering means we somehow fellowship with Christ more intimately. It's an honor and a privilege to suffer with Christ and to be treated by the world as He was treated. The fellowship of His sufferings is a gift from God. God trusts certain people with this kind of experience. I love how Acts 5.41, you remember in the book of Acts in chapter 5, they, they get arrested and then they go out and the Sanhedrin all meets and they want to talk about, we'll just tell them not to talk about Jesus anymore and they'll be fine. And it says this, it says, Then the apostles 
departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Paul and Silas, in chains, in prison, what are they doing? Singing. Miss Shirley has been pretty active in our prison ministry. I've been down there for revivals. And there's something about prison singing. Those girls down there have... Some of them have no hope of getting out, or if they're getting out, it's going to be a long, long time, or they've been denied time and time and time again. Now, the, the truth is, they're, where we minister, they've gotten the privilege to be able to come to that area usually. But to hear some of them sing, even in the midst of a fiery trial, you listen to some of their stories, just heartbreaking. And then... Sandy will start singing it as well with my soul. And they just start singing it out. Or victory in Jesus. They sing it with a reality that sometimes we can't. I was watching today, uh, you know the song Revelation song? Some of you have been in our contemporary service, you know that song. Um, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's a picture actually from Revelation. Hence, Revelation song, okay? Um, last, a couple weekends ago, or maybe it was last weekend, I saw it on YouTube today, they had people from 11 countries come in and sing that song in their native language, one right after the other. It was a really cool kind of moment. That's, there's a song, uh, How Great Is Our God, is on the radio right now, and they're doing that with several different people from all over the world. Well, what's interesting is they, they're singing through, and I don't know the languages, obviously. I mean, they're up there in German singing. You know, They luckily put the words in English underneath so you can kind of follow along. But they're singing through all the languages. And then one of the last one they did was worship leaders from Brazil. Now, those of you who have been around here know that my heart, part of my heart is there. Okay, I've been six times, and I count that a small portion of how many times I hope to go in my life. It, my heart is there. And part of the reason my heart is there is because I remember the multitude of worship services where these people who, when I say have absolutely nothing, I mean they have absolutely nothing. Just are singing songs of praise at the top of their lungs. There have been individuals that I have met that their stories make you cry for the amount of stuff they've been put through. Illnesses, family, taken advantage of from family members as children. And yet they sing. And so when I was watching that today, it almost literally, you know, for a lot of people, Spanish and Portuguese and German, they all sound, well, maybe not German, it kind of, sounds like everybody's mad at you. But, I mean, you know, even when they're singing the praise and worship song, it's like, Ooh, watch out. Uh, they all sound the same. But when there's something about when they started singing that song in Portuguese, I just was taken back to those small churches I've been in where it is just exploding with praise, partly because they've been counted worthy of suffering for the Lord. There's no easy way to say this. But I think that sometimes as Americans, we miss out on part of the experience of God because we have so much. God hasn't called me to be the rich young ruler and to sell everything I've got and to follow with nothing. And I hope if he asked me to do that, my prayer is I'd be willing to say yes. Because he is 
what I claim to be all that I need. But here's the truth. There are people in other parts of this world that have discovered for themselves that he's all they need because he's all they have. Peter is saying, when you are counted worthy to go through the burning, there's a blessing that is there. Rejoice. He then also says that there's glory in the future because of it. It says that you may also rejoice with great joy. You rejoice now because you may rejoice with great joy at the revelation of His glory. Suffering and glory are twin truths that are woven into this fabric. The world believes that the absence of suffering means glory, but Christians' outlook is different. The trial of our faith today brings glory in the future when Jesus returns. It's necessary to understand that Jesus is not going to replace our suffering with glory. He's going to transform our suffering into glory. There's a difference there. One of the ways that they compare it throughout the Scripture is like a woman who gives birth to a child. Her pain transforms into joy at the presence of her child. Our pain, our suffering, will someday be transformed into glory. We pay the price today in order for the enjoyments of the future. It also says in some ways that the Holy Spirit is there in the midst of our suffering in a way that is different, greater than other times. In verse 14, it talks about the Spirit of His glory rests on you. A way that that can be understood is that God's Spirit has rested on those who are following Him. It can literally be translated, the presence of the glory, even the Spirit, rest on you in those moments. Remember Stephen being stoned to death in Acts? It says he saw Jesus and experienced God's glory. This is the joy unspeakable, full of glory that Peter wrote about. They said that his face shone. There was something different about that moment. And, verse 14 reminds us, it gives us the opportunity to praise His name. It says, actually this is verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he should not be ashamed, but should glorify God with that name. The idea is that we are followers of Christ. The word Christian is only found three times in the entire New Testament. There's Acts 11.26 and 26.28 and 1 Peter 4. And it was a name originally given to the followers of Jesus by their enemies as an insult. But in time, it became an honored name. One belonging to Christ. And this is what he says to the people. Expect it, embrace it, rejoice in it, but then examine your life. And this is something, Teresa, you actually brought up last week. It's not okay to just suffer for things you do yourself. It's important to suffer for doing what the Lord calls you to do. And he lumps all these things together, and we're going to step on some toes here in a minute, so just get ready, all right? He says, none of you should suffer, however. Now, don't think this may applies to you if you're a murderer, okay? I'm not going to ask, but my prayer is that there are no murderers in our midst, okay? Thieves, evildoers, or, there's a fourth. What is, anybody have a translation? What does yours say? You've got a Bible, you've got a translation. What does your Bible say for that fourth one? You've got murderer, thief, evildoer, or meddler. Anybody have something different than meddler? Busybody. Prying into other people's affairs. Here's what's interesting about that word. 
It is the only time that word is used. Y'all want to learn a real fancy word? It, in Greek, they call it a hapax legomenon. H-A-P-A-X-L-E-G-O-M-E-N-O-M. Hapax legomenon. Thank you. Appreciate it, Cliff. Didn't hear that ding from the uh, spelling bee. Which means written only once. This is the only time in the entire New Testament this word is used. It's the only time in any of the early Christian writers this word is used. No, no, no. This word that nobody knows how to translate. Yeah. And it's the only time in early Greek stuff around this time it's used. Nobody knows what it means. If you take it apart into its different parts, this word, not hapax legomena, but this particular word, if you take it apart, it means putting, basically, putting your nose in somebody else's business. Okay? So that's meddling, busybody. And here's what's interesting. Because most of us would hear that and go, he's just a busybody. They just got their nose in everybody's business all the time. Who does he compare those people to? Huh? Murderers, thieves, and the evildoers. It's hard to say that word without seeing George W. Bush saying it, right? The evildoers. The really bad people, right? He says, basically, don't say you're getting persecuted. You've been sticking your nose in somebody else's business and you now are being punished for it. Right? I was just minding my own business. When suddenly, were you really? I was minding my own business, talking to everybody in town about what was happening, and suddenly, a word that's similar to this in the same kind of realm is the, a word for gossip. We don't have gossip in the church, do we? We used to have prayer lines, is what we have. Sunday school prayer request time. You know, the, well, I... I really wish y'all would pray for so-and-so. I heard the other day from so-and-so's grandmother's boyfriend that they have been, just need to pray for him. We take all that stuff kind of lightly sometimes, but Peter doesn't. Again, does he group busybodies, sticking your nose, murderers, thieves, evildoers, and this group? The point he's making to them is make sure you're not being persecuted because you really did something wrong. And just in case you think that just means like criminal activity, I'm talking about make sure your conscience is clean. And in the midst of it, ask the question, are you ashamed of Christ? Are you glorifying Christ in the midst of it? I mean, this is the phrase that is used in youth groups across the country. All right, When you're at a party or you're out with some friends and they start doing some things, are you ashamed of the Lord or are you glorifying Him in the midst of it? But it really is for those of us, any of us, that when we come in contact with people who are challenging us because of our beliefs, are we naturally ashamed of the Lord or do we glorify Him in the midst of it? Are we concerned for those who don't know Him? And it says, when trials come, don't don't be surprised by them. Expect them, rejoice in them if... Your own life is pure and you are suffering for the cause of Christ. And then he gives this last little tidbit in chapter 4. Those who suffer according to God's will should, in doing good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator 
I love this. It's a banking term. That means to deposit for safekeeping in the Creator God. Deposit yourself for safekeeping in Creator God. I read a couple of things on that, a couple of translations, and all I could picture was a safe deposit box. Now, they obviously didn't have safe deposit boxes back in Jesus' time. But if I have valuable stuff, what do I do? I take it to the safe deposit box. Whose job is it to protect the contents of the safe deposit box? The bank, right? They don't let anybody in that doesn't have a key or doesn't have a sign. They don't have anybody. Nobody can just walk in and go, I need to see Lyle Larson's safe deposit box. They have safe keeping there. What this says is, place yourself in the place where the Creator God is the one who's taking care of you. And it is, it is His job for safekeeping. Now what's interesting is, they use the phrase Creator God. He says, be constantly committing to the Creator. If we really have hope, we really believe Jesus is coming again, it says that the way we constantly commit ourselves to the Lord is by doing good. And in doing good, what we are saying is that we obey His Word and we're laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven. And the idea is, live for the Lord, no matter what's happening around you, as if you're continually investing in what is to come, not what is now. Your retirement plan is growing and growing no matter what's happening here and now. There's a great illustration of this back in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah told the people all along, God will restore us to this land. God is going to wipe us out. He is going to send the Babylonians, but He will restore us to this land. And as the Babylonians are coming, as the invading force is occupying, they occupy some of Jeremiah's family's land. And one of his relatives, his cousin, comes to him and says, Jeremiah, if you believe so much that God is going to restore this land, buy that land from me. In other words, put your money where your mouth is. Literally. If you believe that God's going to restore this land, if there is inheritance to come in the future, then invest in that inheritance now. What does Jeremiah do? You know? He buys the land. And you can imagine, he was the laughing stock of the people. Did you hear? Did you hear what he paid for that land that he can't even own because the Babylonians have wiped us out? I mean, we're not coming back here. He's not coming back here. But it was a symbol of faith in the Lord. And the God honored that decision. You see, I think they use the phrase faithful creator here because the purpose behind it is saying, if he's the one that created all things, then he is definitely the one that can provide all things. He will take care of you when you need it. An episode I watched of Duck Dynasty recently involved uh, the dad needing to buy his son a vehicle because the son kept bringing the vehicle back empty of gas. And so he, and there are lots of things that just, you know, astonish you a little bit. And you realize these guys are very, very wealthy. But he went out that day to buy a vehicle. After he and his wife talked about it and he decided he needed to buy his son a vehicle, he goes out and just starts offering cash for the vehicle. And I thought today reading this, 
that wasn't a big deal to him. He, he's got plenty of cash, and he was buying his son. His purpose was to buy him a beat-up old truck. Because he wanted to have a good, nice truck. He wanted a beat-up old truck. So it wasn't a big deal for him to buy a $3,000 vehicle. Now, for me to go out and buy Eli a $3,000 vehicle and just pay cash on the spot, that's a big deal. But this guy is multimillionaire. So there shouldn't be any surprise that he says, i got $3,000 I can pay you right now. When you got $50 million in the bank, $3,000 is not that bad. I was kind of thinking that sitting here today, talking about the times in my life when I wonder if God can supply my needs. God, you know, I really need this. The first thing is, God knows when I really need something when I don't. And the second thing is, when He knows I need it, do I really think He doesn't have the resources available to provide it? Creator God, the one who did all of it. In fact, in the Acts in the early church, they used to talk about praying to the God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in it. Our Heavenly Father is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is a faithful creator and His faithfulness will not fail. There is nothing for us to fear if we are suffering in the will of God. Our victorious Creator God will see us through whatever it is. Peter sums up the first four chapters with those important guidelines. Expect it when it comes. Rejoice in the midst of it as long as it is for the will of God you are suffering. And entrust yourself to the Lord for His safekeeping. Let's pray.